It wasn't too long ago that Palestine and the Palestinian cause really seemed to unite the Arab world. Yeah, growing up in Lebanon, it was it was the second intifada, and it was everything about Palestine. The children who are facing up to the tanks and to the occupation and the protests and revolutionary songs around Palestine. These things were just so deep inside our collective daily consciousness. You don't see this happening anymore. Ali Harb is a journalist, now covering Arab nations, Israel, and the U.S. And just a few weeks ago, on August 13th, he heard about this deal between the United Arab Emirates and Israel for the first time. And he realized that dream for Palestine was gone. It's no longer the Arab-Israeli conflict. We need new terminology. The Arab and Israeli conflict against the Palestinians. That was his first thought. My second thought was, this is a move that is intended to boost President Donald Trump's re-election chances. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Today, we're talking about the deal between the UAE and Israel. Not a peace deal, exactly. More of a deal to begin upgrading relations. A deal to advance peace and prosperity in the region, as the White House puts it. But peace and prosperity for whom? And who is this deal leaving behind? Ali covers the intersection of the Middle East and the United States for the Middle East Eye news site. And he's been spending a lot of time lately on the Trump administration. Lately, I have been working on a range of issues relating to U.S. policy towards the Middle East and how that could be playing into the election campaign. But this story starts way before the current U.S. election season. Even before Trump, Ali says something was changing in the Middle East. So for years now, we have been seeing the Arab Gulf states and the UAE and Saudi Arabia in particular sort of turn their attention to Iran to confront what they call Iran's malign influence in the region with two things in mind. One, that Iran is now the regional enemy, so we've got to forge whatever ties we can have to confront Iran. And two, it's no longer Israel that's the enemy of the Arab peoples. It's a pretty big political shift, but it wasn't an earthquake. It didn't happen all at once. Ali says there were these tremors over time all over the region, in Iraq, Lebanon, Syria, Yemen. So Saudi Arabia and the UAE have been seeing themselves sort of besieged by Iranian influence and One way to counter Iran has been to turn to the West, specifically to Washington. 2016, the presidential candidate Donald Trump is setting his sights on Washington, too. So let's let's try to set the scene a little bit. Obama is in his last year in office 
And he had signed a pretty comprehensive nuclear deal with Iran. Under the nuclear deal that we, our allies and partners, reached with Iran last year, Iran will not get its hands on a nuclear bomb. That lifted a major amount of the sanctions that the international community has on the Islamic Republic in exchange for Iran scaling back its nuclear program. Israel was not happy with that deal. The Gulf states, particularly Saudi Arabia and the UAE, were not happy with that deal. So you already had this fertile ground for mutual interests, for cooperation. And candidate Trump fully embraces that same idea. Throughout his presidential campaign, he had said these hyperbolic pronouncements that Iran nuclear deal is the worst deal ever. Certain countries like Saudi Arabia, this was a, you can't even discuss this deal with them. I think it's the worst document I've ever seen. He comes into office. And at the top of his agenda is ending the U.S. nuclear deal with Iran. Washington has a feud with Tehran, and now it becomes the enemy of my enemy is my friend. The bond between Trump's Washington and the Arab Gulf deepens. Now, Trump had had real estate dealings with Saudi royals before, but up until now, this political relationship was theoretical. He'd never held office. And despite his Islamophobic rhetoric, despite the insulting things that he had said about Gulf Arab kingdoms, once he came into office, the Saudis saw an opportunity. And I think he too saw an opportunity with Saudi Arabia. Donald Trump's first foreign visit, it was to Saudi Arabia. This was the much-anticipated moment of President Trump's visit to Saudi Arabia. And the Saudis made a scene out of that visit. They brought the regional leaders to turn it into this U.S. Islamic Arab summit. President Trump and King Salman of Saudi Arabia called for strong action against Iran, who they blamed for using proxy militias in Yemen, Lebanon, Syria, and across the Middle East. The bond had solidified. And just a few weeks later, Saudi and the UAE cut out Qatar by imposing a blockade that's still in place. So going forward, Qatar is not really part of the picture. Meanwhile, inside Saudi Arabia, there's a power struggle going on for the throne. This power struggle may not seem like it has a lot to do with the UAE and Israel. But Saudi Arabia is the biggest country in the Gulf. It's the home of the two holiest sites in Islam, Mecca and Medina. What happens in Saudi Arabia matters. And Trump was a new president. So it was important that this relationship start off right. King Salman is aging. He had his nephew, Mohammed bin Nayef, who's a former intelligence chief, as the crown prince and Mohammed bin Salman will overtake his nephew, Mohammed bin Nayef, to become crown prince. At the same time, you had very similar dynamics in Washington, where Trump had staffed his White House with family members, <laughs> including Jared Kushner. Right. 
It sounds ludicrous, but I truly believe that a part of the love story between the Trumps and the rulers of Riyadh is our government is also a family business. Soon, Jared Kushner, the new presidential advisor, and Mohammed bin Salman, the new crown prince, are keeping in touch. They just hit it off, whether it was calculated or whether they just clicked. Enter the United Arab Emirates, the UAE. Now, just to, I know it may get a little bit complicated because we're introducing another player here. Yeah. (laughs) In the UAE, the powerful crown prince, Mohammed bin Zayed, also had a favorite in the fight for succession in Saudi Arabia. And his favorite was Mohammed bin Salman. So again, we have a convergence of interest. Both Washington and Abu Dhabi want Mohammed bin Salman to become king. So that added to the sort of fertile ground for cooperation. And Trump announces the U.S. withdrawal from the Iran deal on May 8th, 2018. And we see this sort of alliance is cemented in such a powerful way that even After the assassination of Jamal Khashoggi, when the world was denouncing Saudi Arabia from across the globe. Most of the blame is directed at Saudi Arabia and the crown prince Mohammed bin Salman. Donald Trump is also condemned for not doing more. The White House was very reluctant to even issue lip service to this egregious act. So... This conversation reminds me of this headline from the New York Times, came out in 2019. The most powerful Arab ruler isn't MBS, as he's known, Mohammed bin Salman. It's MBZ, Mohammed bin Zayed. And so it's not Saudi Arabia, they're saying. It's the United Arab Emirates. I I do agree with that New York Times headline that MBZ is a more powerful figure than MBS. The way Ali explains it, Mohammed bin Zayed is almost 60. Mohammed bin Salman is just 35. And of course, MBZ has also been in power longer. You have a very well-established and well-liked ruler who helped a much younger one get to the throne. It's not official yet, but, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, de facto ruler of Saudi Arabia. So, of course, you're going to have these sort of power dynamics And Ali says we've already seen these dynamics play out all over the Middle East. And to take it back full circle with Israel, it was MBZ who took the step, not MBS. Under Mohammed bin Zayed in Abu Dhabi, UAE relations have gone from the UAE rejecting Israel to this deal with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. UAE and Israel have had open relations for the past few years. You had top Israeli officials visit Abu Dhabi. Miri Ragev, uh, the right-wing sports minister of Israel, toured the biggest mosque in the UAE. Israeli foreign minister also visited Abu Dhabi. Dubai was having a world expo this year. Israel was invited. Amirati firms announced a partnership with Israeli firms to combat the coronavirus. The United Arab Emirates wanted to fly aid to Palestinians, and instead of 
taken it to Jordan and the West Bank. No, they flew it directly to Tel Aviv, which tells us a level of cooperation between government agencies. And that's something we hadn't seen before, right? Unprecedented completely. So why were the UAE and Israel getting closer, doing these deals, having these flights out in the open? What's behind that? Well, the big political theme behind that is Iran. Benjamin Netanyahu's here to project fear of what a nuclear Iran could do. Israel and Prime Minister Netanyahu specifically do not have a good relationship with Iran. And as Ali puts it, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. It just brought these forces together. The UAE has been wanting to become the sort of international hub that is open for all. And they didn't want animosity with a regional power that is Israel. So what is the agreement actually? What does it mean? Well, the agreement in itself, as outlined by the White House's statement, does not say a lot. It says that the three countries have agreed in principle to set up diplomatic relations, to work on bilateral deals on technology and energy and security and tourism, to allow Muslims from the United Arab Emirates to go and worship in Jerusalem at Al-Aqsa Mosque. But it's sort of an agreement to have an agreement. These details are not ironed out yet. How is the deal going so far, in your estimation? There was an early hiccup in this deal. U.S.-brokered deal between Israel and the United Arab Emirates may be souring less than two weeks after it was announced. The United Arab Emirates had been seeking F-35 fighter jets, which are some of the most advanced fighter jets in the world. The United States has been reluctant to sell these aircraft to the UAE because of an American military policy that maintains that Israel must have military superiority in the region. Uh, Now, the Emiratis signed this agreement with the Israelis, and they're thinking, well, it shouldn't be a problem. Benjamin Netanyahu comes out and says, oh, no, I didn't agree to them having those F-35s. Benjamin Netanyahu opposed the sale of F-35 jets to Abu Dhabi. And the Americans are coming out and saying, we're committing to the qualitative military edge to Israel. So the Emiratis feel sort of disappointed. I think a casual listener to this episode, someone who may not be as steeped in these politics as perhaps you are, might think, what about the Palestinians? What about them? What, what, what happened to the Palestinians in this deal? They are an afterthought in all of this, unfortunately. The Palestinian standing, the Palestinian struggle, the Palestinian suffering are all sort of on the margins of these grand political conversations that are happening. There was one concession, not really part of the deal, but it was something the UAE asked for. The Israeli government agreed to quote-unquote suspend 
its plans to annex parts of the West Bank. So the UAE has been going around and celebrating this as a big victory for Palestinians that, you know, we stopped annexation. And at the very moment that they're saying this, Netanyahu comes out, oh no, I'm, I'm still annexing these territories. I'm, you know, it's, it's still on the table. We just, we're just hitting a pause button for a bit. So the Palestinians sort of don't factor anymore, it appears, into these grand questions of regional geopolitics. Of course, the Palestinian struggle matters to Palestinians, it matters on the ground, it's still a real thing, the suffering is very real. But when it comes to Arab-Israeli relations, or at least within the context of this UAE-Israeli deal, the sticking point is not the Palestinians. The Palestinians are an afterthought at best. And Palestinians we talk to say that's one of the biggest problems with the deal. My name is Deanna Othman, and I'm from Oakland, Illinois. This was particularly troubling seeing the first commercial flight between the UAE and Israel with Ivanka and Jared. This is almost a slap in the face to the Palestinians who are under siege in Gaza, who are dealing with pandemic. This is Sam. I'm a business consultant. I'm from Albire, occupied Palestine. The thing about the UAE's normalization with Israel that bothers me most is that while Israel carries out never-ending war crimes, not permitting Palestinian refugees to return to their homes, the UAE, in a politically childish move, created this red herring to distract the world from the real Israel. And this is Fatma. I'm a Palestinian mother. What bothers me the most is that Arabs in general have always kept and maintained Palestine in their rhetoric. And this was a painful thing to see and to to watch for me as a Palestinian. And we should also add, Iran wasn't a big fan of this deal either. This is an unacceptable action. In our opinion, and I condemn it. It is a betrayal to all the Muslim convictions. We warned them not to start accommodating Israel in this region. So again, this question, why now? My theory is to give Donald Trump a re-election boost. Other than that, the United Arab Emirates is not gaining that much from formalizing this deal, other than antagonizing the Palestinians, other than further upping the hostility with Iran. What do they get out of Trump being re-elected? One of the main things is that Trump is is committed to his maximum pressure campaign against Iran, whereas his Democratic rival, Joe Biden, has committed to returning to the Iran nuclear deal, which would entail lifting the sanctions, which would strengthen the Iranian economy, which would free Iran to be engaged in more regional activities, which would make Iran a more formidable 
foe rather than a country with a, with a tanking economy. But the people who came together on this deal, these leaders, aren't voting in this election. The American people are. And Ali says this is where the grand plan may have fallen flat. A couple of weeks ago, Jared Kushner, special advisor to the president and the president's son-in-law, is making the rounds on cable TV morning shows to sell this deal. We now go to Bedminster, New Jersey, where President Trump's advisor and his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, join us. This is the first peace deal between the Arabs and Israel in 27 years. And every time he gets to an interview, the question is about the mail-in ballots. Hmm. You're going to disenfranchise some of your own voters in the next election by not giving emergency aid to the Postal Service now. Um, okay, again, I hope we'll get to talk about Middle East peace in a minute. It's about what Trump said about Kamala Harris's eligibility to be vice president. And again, you know, just like President Trump achieved a historic Middle East uh, deal, which I hope we'll get to talk about. He got so frustrated, he told the interviewer, I hope we're going to be able to talk about this historic deal because that's why I came here. People on TV know their audience. And they know the first thing that's on their audience's mind is not the U.S.-Israel-UAE peace deal. So from what it sounds like, it might not be the first question on American voters' minds. And in the meantime, the region has changed. Basically, we are seeing a move in the region where Arab states partnering up with Israel and forgetting about Palestinians. Mm. Uh, Egypt has a peace treaty with Israel. Jordan has a peace treaty with Israel. Things are a bit complicated on the Lebanese front. In Syria, despite the civil war, the front with Israel is is very stable and quiet. Uh, Now we are seeing Gulf states, starting with the UAE, are they going to be pressured? It's still unclear what Saudi Arabia will do. They did open up their airspace to Israeli flights for the first time. Now they have their allies in the UAE normalizing with Israel. And that, interestingly, opens a channel that if you need to go and meet with an Israeli official, you need to fly to Israel. You could meet him or her in the UAE. And who knows who may follow normalizing relations with Israel and taking Israel as an ally. So how can we call it the Arab-Israeli conflict when a good chunk of Arab states is allied with Israel? In many ways, the Palestinian cause is taking a backseat. It's barely a headline to the geopolitical questions that are hanging over the people of the region. Gaza is being bombed daily, as we speak. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Amy Walters, with help from Abigail Oniwohacha, Dina Kispe, Alexandra Locke, Nagin Oliai, Priyanka Tilve, Ney Alvarez, and me, Malika Bilal. Natalia Aldana is the engagement producer. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Stacey Samuel is The Take's executive producer. 
and Raylan Bashir is Al Jazeera's head of audio. And a special thanks to our producer in Ramallah, in the occupied Palestinian territories, Rania Zabana. We'll be back 